0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this, this book in our new series, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have to share with us. Lord, I pray that you would help us all understand that we don't gather on Sunday mornings to hear from man, to hear what I have to say but we gather to hear what you have to say because you have something to say to us. And I pray that you would use this time to say it and to speak to us and to to give us ears to hear what you have said, Lord, about your son, about our souls, about eternity and eternal things. Lord, we commit this time to you this morning and The rest of this time we'll be studying Galatians. We pray that it would be profitable to all of us and to our our souls. Lord, we pray that your words wouldn't fall to the ground on us, Lord. And we pray that you'd be glorified in our study, Lord, that this study would cause us to appreciate you and give you thanks and give you praise greater than we do, Lord. We all could praise you more and thank you more help us to see lord and cause a song to be put into our heart as we think about all that you've done for us we commit this to you lord in jesus name amen well beginning this morning and probably continuing until the end of this year we'll be studying galatians at all saints church An exciting book. And I'll just say at the beginning, up front, that Galatians is a book that's all about freedom. Freedom is the key concept in Galatians. And the concept of freedom is especially interesting to people. Because people are interested in freedom. Especially in the 21st century, as we'll see. Pastors and commentators who have preached through Galatians or written on Galatians have all recognized that Galatians is about freedom, and and that is uh, shown in the many titles that pastors will subtitle their series by or that commentators will subtitle their book by. So, for example, the commentator Leon Morris, in his commentary on Galatians, he titled it Paul's Charter of Christian Freedom. That's what he called his commentary. Some others will say the Magna Carta of Christian Freedom. Warren Wiersbe, in his famous uh, B series in the Galatians uh, section, he calls it "Be Free." Chuck Swindoll, in his study of Galatians, calls it the "Letter of Liberation," and I could quote many others. That we see that this book is about freedom. Now, when you look at the Book of Galatians as a whole, just a just a cursory glance at the Book of Galatians, you'll be struck that most of the book is actually. Uh, seems to be talking about the issue of justification by faith. So from chapter 1 all through chapter 6, righteousness is a, is a big thing. How are we right with God? How are we righteous before God? Through faith or through the works of the law? And this is clearly uh, much of the content of Galatians. But nevertheless, in key pivotal places in the book, the issue of freedom comes up. So when I say that Galatians is about freedom... I don't mean that Paul's writing the word freedom on every page. The word freedom only comes up a few times. But when it does come up, it's at the pivotal place. And you see that in Paul's mind, this issue of justification by faith is for him an issue of freedom and slavery. He sees through what's happening. He says, this is about freedom and slavery. What's going on here with justification? So righteousness and freedom are related. Righteousness by faith and freedom are related. Righteousness through works, or through the works of the law, and slavery to Paul are related. Keep that in mind. I've subtitled this series, also with freedom in it, I've subtitled it, Serious Freedom. Serious Freedom. And that subtitle is meant to emphasize two things. One, the serious of the matter of freedom. And what we're going to see here is that the book of Galatians is Paul's most urgent, passionate, and serious letter. Of all his letters, this is the one that he's the most intense, the most concerned, the most serious. Because this issue of freedom is so important and urgent to Paul. So serious freedom, think of the seriousness of the matter of freedom. And then second of all, it's to emphasize the real and amazing nature of the freedom that is spoken of here in the bible the real and amazing nature of the freedom just like people would say i made some serious money today right what do they mean by that (laughs) they mean i made a lot of money i made some real money today you know i made a lot of money Or that guy's got serious jump what do they mean by that he's got a real jump he's got an amazing jump and you can I uh, describe it with other examples. Paul's talking about serious freedom. The freedom that Paul's talking about is real. It's not just vain words. I think sometimes we as Christians can use Christian language, and sometimes it's just kind of vain words. But when Paul talks about freedom, he's not talking about something that just sounds nice on a page. He's talking about serious freedom. How many of you want serious freedom? Not just freedom on the page that's not really real, but the freedom he's talking about is substantial. It's amazing, as we're going to see. So it's a serious matter, but it's also real and substantial. The book of Galatians is about serious freedom. These two emphases will be recurring throughout our series, and I'll be drawing our attention to them. But this morning, before we begin the exegesis of the book of Galatians and go through it verse by verse and, and talk about it, this morning we're going to do an introduction to the book, and I'd just like to talk about two things this morning. One, the idea of freedom and its relationship to the book of Galatians. And then secondly, we'll close with a little bit of background um, regarding the book of Galatians. Who wrote it, when it was written, where uh, it was written to, et cetera. So the idea of freedom and its relationship to the book of Galatians. There are a few ideas that captivate the modern mind and hold their interest nowadays. Right and wrong, design and purpose, dignity and honor, these ideas are kind of falling by the wayside these days. Have you found that? That the modern mind isn't really captivated by the ideas of dignity and honor and purpose, and even right and wrong. It's kind of relativistic now. There's nearly no such thing as right and wrong. It's just what's acceptable in different cultures. And these ideas are falling by the wayside. They're losing their significance to the modern mind, and we pray that they would come back. But nevertheless, even though these other ideas have been not interesting. Uh, not gaining the interest of the modern mind, there's still one idea that captivates the modern mind with the same vitality that the other ideas used to captivate humans' minds. And that idea is the idea of freedom. People today are still interested in freedom. That hasn't gone out of vogue. That hasn't gone out of style. People want to be free. And this is reflective, you'll see it in the news Lots of discussion about freedom, freedom of your speech, freedom of thought, freedom of who you can marry, freedom of different countries being oppressed from others. It's all over the news. People are still interested in freedom. You find it in our books and in our movies, in our storytelling. It's romanticized. It's held up as something that's greatly to be esteemed, freedom. How many of you remember the Academy Award winning movie Braveheart, right? And what what is that movie all about? Freedom, right? As he's being cut in pieces. Freedom. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what captures minds still today. There's been other movies that have come out recently that deal with freedom and hold it up in high esteem. Les Miserables is one of such movies that came out recently. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, of all, it's all about people not wanting to be oppressed, not wanting to be slaves, not wanting to be under the dominion of tyranny. Still captures people today. Recently, the movie Lincoln came out, which dealt with the emancipation of the African American. Even the Hunger Games, fictional, right? But if you look up that, and I did a little bit of research on the Hunger Games, one of the prominent themes in the Hunger Games is slavery to a tyrannical government and this desire to be free, right? So it still captures us. It's hard, it'd be hard to find someone who doesn't want freedom, right? Go out on the street and say, would you rather be a slave or free? What do you think most people are going to say? Well, free. It's not, it's not even really something that they have to think about. Of course, the desire to be free is not modern. Uh, People have always desired to be free and not slaves from the very beginning all throughout the ages. It's a desire that's essential to our human nature, actually. It's something very profound in our being that we weren't created to be slaves, right? God didn't create us to be oppressed. And so we long to be free. We see in the Bible itself that right in the days of the Old Testament, there's the issue of slavery and freedom. And freedom is something that's sought. The whole saga with Israel and Egypt is about God delivering them out of slavery and into an existence of freedom. The year of Jubilee is seen as a wonderful thing when the slaves are set free after every 50 years. Everyone's set free and they can now return to normal life of living free. In the New Testament, slavery is also a big issue because slavery was a huge issue in the Roman Empire, and slaves didn't like to be slaves in those days either. Before Christ came, you hear the story of Spartacus, the slave, and his uprising. They were trying to throw off their slavery and be free. People want to be free. But I think it's interesting that it's not until the modern times that freedom has become... A very powerful idea, not because it wasn't a powerful idea before, but I think in the past, freedom competed with other powerful ideas. And so freedom was one of many other ideas. Belief in God, belief in design, belief in purpose, belief in right and wrong, belief in honor, belief in dignity, as well as the belief in freedom. All of those things influenced mankind. But in the modern world, as other things begin to fall away, freedom which has always been a powerful idea, becomes even more and more eminent and prominent and controlling for people because that's really, uh, they don't have much else left but freedom. And so this almost exclusive desire for freedom is a very modern idea. The nation of America was founded on the idea of freedom in the age of revolution. And so in one sense, you could say, America is a modernistic nation, one of the most modernistic nations of all. It set a standard for other nations after it. The Declaration of Independence declares that God gave all men the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what America was founded upon, that belief. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And don't think that those three are equal in the mind of Americans or in the mind of Thomas Jefferson, you can see very clearly which one is the most important of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness by Patrick Henry's famous quotation. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God, I know what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death, what does he want? He wants liberty. Because to Patrick Henry and many others, having life and even having peace and happiness without liberty doesn't seem to be really worth it. So you can see how America, in America, liberty and freedom is really central even more than life itself. Freedom, you could say, is the defining characteristic of Americans. Non-Americans will often point to that. I know as a Canadian, although I'm a dual citizen, I grew up in Canada, I can also attest that there's something unique about Americans. They desire freedom, and they have this, and of course Canadians desire freedom too, but it's like Americans hold it up like as a flag more than any any others. In the Civil War, there was a fight for uh, the application of that principle, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all men. And in um, Lincoln's famous Gettysburg speech, he says that the nation was conceived in liberty and it was fighting for a new birth of freedom. The French were very impressed with all this. In 1875, the French gave to America a symbol of America, the Statue of Liberty. In fact, the French called it. And the French didn't just say, hey, it's great that... You guys over there are all about liberty. The French actually, call, they didn't call it the Statue of Liberty. They called it liberty enlightening the world. A very modern idea. Liberty enlightening the world. Basically, you Americans are setting the standard for everybody else. That torch is to shine the light of liberty to all peoples. Liberty, you'll find it, you'll notice it in our songs, in our symbols. You can say it's in the American fabric. It's in our blood. And many people come to America and have come to America precisely for the reason of freedom. From a different part of the world, Moshe Dayan, a famous general of Israel, he says that freedom is the oxygen of the soul. Human beings want it. You need oxygen also. Human beings need it. Now the freedom that we've been looking at here with America and from the slaves slavery from Egypt is national freedom political freedom or social freedom freedom from political oppression or social tyranny and fear but the book of galatians is talking about a freedom of a different kind than that paul is talking about what Jesus was talking about when Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 36, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus was talking about a freedom that only he can give you. If the Son sets you free, then you're really free. But if the Son doesn't set you free, then you're not really free. And you remember what the Jews said to him in the next verse? They say, we're not slaves to anybody. What do you mean we'll be free? Right? So they're hearing his words and saying, no one's, you know, we're not slaves. Yeah, the Romans are over us, but we're not slaves to anyone. How then can you say that we're not free? Say they were thinking we're free because we're not physically oppressed, socially oppressed, politically oppressed. So we're free. Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for saying, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And it is a beautiful moment. But that isn't true if you're only emancipated socially or politically or nationally. That isn't true. You actually aren't free at last unless the sun Has set you free. And I think this is an important lesson for mankind that's pursuing freedom and that desires freedom. That we need to help them see that, yeah, we're not against freedom from from these other things, but you need to understand that you're not actually free until the Son sets you free. You can fight your whole life for civil rights and all these things, and that's fine, that's good. These things need to be fought. But don't think you're free until you've actually been delivered through Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, Paul's talking about what slaves should do if they become Christians when they're slaves or what free men should do. And he actually tells these slaves, he says, Look, if you're a slave, don't try to not be a slave. You're actually free if you're a Christian. He that is a slave is actually Christ's free man. And he that became a Christian when he wasn't a slave is actually Christ's slave. So he's actually saying, Look, you're a slave, but don't think you're not free. Because freedom is something far deeper than just not having a physical earthly ruler. You're actually free. What is the freedom that Jesus and Paul are talking about? What is the freedom that the Bible is talking about? This implies, brothers and sisters, that there is a bondage and oppressor and tyranny and a fear that's far greater than all these other things. This freedom that Christ offers, this true freedom, implies a true bondage. It implies a true tyranny, right? It's not political, it's not national, it's not social, but it's spiritual. And if you were to lump these words together, you'd get sort of the idea of what this bondage is about. It's the bondage or tyranny or oppression over mankind of Satan, of the law, of sin, And of death. Those things are all connected. Don't think of four different bondages. It's really one spiritual bondage that oppresses mankind and that destroys mankind. And if you're not free from that, you're not free at all. These other things compared to this true spiritual freedom is kind of like if you were to see an angry rat walk into your house. How many of you would be grossed out and freaked out if an angry rat came into your house and it was attacking people? And you're like, oh, there's a rat. Oh, my goodness. Get this thing out of here, right? Right? A rat walks into your house. What happens in the midst of this chaos of the rat? A bear walks into your house. A rat, a bear, oh my goodness, you know. You kind of forget about the rat real quick, right? (laughs) These other oppressions, political, national, social, are kind of like the rat. But this spiritual bondage and oppression is like the bear. And when you see the real bondage, then these other bondages kind of lose their vigor. Not that they're nothing. You don't want to keep being bit by it. But it's nothing in compared to the bear. And if you were to just get rid of the rat but not deal with the bear, you'd be in big trouble, wouldn't you? You kill the rat and say, I'm free now. I'm free. No, the bear is there, and he's going to kill you. But, of course, if you get rid of the bear, then the rat is easy to take care of. It's kind of nothing, and you can face the rat with confidence, knowing that you've taken down the bear. It's only when you get rid of the bear that you're free. The bear is the rule of Satan, the law, sin, and death, all of those things together. The Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world, and that he actually blinds men and controls men and is the tyrant over men. He controls the world with his darkness and his lies about God. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. He came in and he asserted his rule. You listen to me now, and I'll tell you what God is like. You follow me, and and everything will be good. But nothing actually turns out to be right. He lies about God and his goodness. Satan utilizes God's law. That is his secret weapon. And he tells men, you know, you need to know this about God, that he really doesn't have your best interest at heart. You need to know that. How many of you are tempted to think that on a daily basis? You know, God really doesn't have your best interest at heart. And if you just leave it to him, things are really going to go bad. You've got to kind of put your trust in yourself a little bit. You can't rely upon him. You know, God really doesn't care about you. He's just a lawgiver. He's just, all he is is a lawgiver. And if you break his laws, then he's your enemy, and nothing is going to, he's not going to help you anymore. The law is the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There is no other truth besides God being a lawgiver, and you break his laws, and that's all there is to it. The Bible tells us that the law gives sin its strength. Satan lies about the character of God, and the law gives sin its strength, because when we think God is like that, and we think all there is is commandments to God, don't touch that, don't do this, don't eat that, don't go there, And Satan says, you know, he's holding out on you. That law gives sin its strength, as Romans chapter 7 says. It stirs you up to sin. And it makes you want to rebel against God. But of course, every time you sin, then you bring upon yourself the condemnation, death. And there's nothing that you can do to escape from this horrible situation of Satan, the law, sin, and death. There's nothing you can affect and do to rescue yourself from this if God doesn't come in and save you. You're unrighteous. Try to keep the law. You'll never do it. Try to believe in a good God unless God reveals himself as a good God. You'll never be able to. Try to escape death and damnation. You'll never do it. We're captives to defeat and fear, and there's nothing that we can do. And the end result is death. It was into this world of slavery that Jesus Christ was born for the purpose of delivering us out of this tyranny and this slavery. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that through death, after telling, telling us of Christ's incarnation, of Him taking flesh and blood, He put on flesh and blood For this reason, I quote, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's what Jesus, Hebrews tells us why he came into the world, was to free you from the slavery of Satan and of fear. And he did that by his death, If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And how does the Son set you free? He sets you free through death. He comes into the world and puts on flesh and blood so that later on we can hear of his flesh being broken and of his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We talk a lot about how the cross is the revelation of who God is, and it's in the cross that we see the truth, the light, about who God is. It's in the cross that our sins are forgiven and they're no longer a problem for us anymore. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. He died for our sins to take them away so that we wouldn't have to die. It's through the cross that Jesus Christ put away sin and rose from the dead, guaranteeing for anyone who believes salvation and resurrection from the dead through a life of incorruption. He came to deliver us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul tells us Christ redeemed us or ransomed us from the curse of the law. Some people think that when Jesus died, he paid a ransom to Satan, and that's absolutely not true. Satan only controls us by means of the law. When Christ died, he paid the ransom to the law. He gave the law what was due. When Christ died, he satisfied the demands of God's just law, our death. And Jesus took our sins and paid the price that we deserve. And once that was paid, then Satan had nothing more that he could do. He was spoiled or stripped powerless at the cross. Because only through the law could he rule over us. God is more than a lawgiver, apparently because he sent Jesus into the world to die for lawbreakers and to give us freedom and to give us eternal life and to triumph over the darkness of lies with the truth of who he is. Jesus is greater than Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was involved in the emancipation of the African Americans, but Jesus was involved in the emancipation of sinners. The Calvary, the battlefield of Calvary, is greater than the battlefield of Gettysburg. It was at the Calvary where Jesus shed his blood that we could be free. And we should never forget it. So at the heart of this freedom we're going to see as we go through Galatians, and we'll talk a lot more about this, is the cross of Christ and justification through faith and the truth of the gospel and grace versus law all of this is at the heart of, of the freedom that Paul's talking about. And it's funny because when you talk about freedom with Christians, many times Christians think that when the Bible's talking about freedom, it's only talking about how we're free to do things. Have you ever heard that? Sometimes Christians get offended when you talk about being free from law. And they say, no, 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 it's not freedom from, it's freedom to. You're free now to keep all the commandments. You're free now to do all this good stuff. And don't think about the free from. You're not really free from anything. You're just now infused with some new power, so now you're free to do stuff. And they miss the point of Galatians, that the point of Galatians is indeed, and really the point of freedom, is about being freed from oppression, from tyranny, from bondage. And freedom from and freedom to are actually inseparable things, but one depends upon the other. So you're only free to do something when you're free from that which prevents you from doing it. So, for example, I want to sit down in the grass and read a book in peace. I am free to sit down on the grass and read a book in peace if I'm free from harassment and free from the fear of harassment from wandering gangs and such, right? (laughs) The United States is only free to govern themselves and live in peace like they want to, if they're free from the oppression of another nation. And so you and I, only when we're free from the lies of the devil, free from the law, and therefore free from sin and death, can we be really free to enjoy the real life and liberty and happiness or joy that Jesus Christ has for us. So freedom from and to are inseparable, but freedom from is the foundation. Freedom from is really the more important one because the other... The freedom, too, depends upon it. Jesus comes to give us life, liberty, and happiness, but it's the kind that only he can give. The Christian church was also founded on freedom, but freedom in Christ, the freedom that he brings. The Christian church is also defined. Our defining characteristic is freedom. I think we lose sight of that. Our defining characteristic is freedom. It should be in our symbols, in our songs, and in our fabric as well. The cross is our statue of liberty. It proclaims the true liberty that enlightens the world, not the statue of liberty in the New York City harbor. That doesn't proclaim the true freedom that enlightens the world. And for all those who are panting for the soul's true oxygen of freedom they come to this light and if mankind knew that true freedom was to be found in Christ they'd flock to Jesus Christ like they flock to America because they're looking for freedom and they'll only find it in him so only those who are spiritually free are truly free and that is a powerful truth That is something that's relevant to the 21st century mind. That is something that we as the Christian church can speak to them. You know, we need to be able to explain all sorts of things to them. Or perhaps one of the ways we can catch their attention is by telling them, you know, you're not really free. And you know, Jesus Christ is the one who gives true freedom. And you're actually a slave. And they might say to us, like the Jews, what do you mean I'm a slave? I'm not a slave to anybody, right? They want to be free. And we can explain to them, he that sins is a slave to sin. And if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So this book is as relevant as it's ever been, perhaps even more so today. And amazingly, we today in the 21st century can learn a lot about freedom from this ancient letter of Paul to the Galatians. So I hope as we go through this book, we will be seeing how it is relevant and powerful. Now, the last thing we're going to do this morning is just look at the background to the letter. This is going to be briefer than I would like it to be. And as we go through the... Um... <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to say, <laughs> but only such little time to say it. We get to January <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but as we go through the book, I'll be filling in details that are missed. First thing to note about the background of the book of Galatians is that the authorship of Galatians is actually undisputed. This is not one of those books in the Bible that scholars pick apart and say, I don't think Paul the Apostle really wrote this. This is one of those books that's actually the standard uh, by which other letters of Paul are evaluated. So this is a truly, in the minds of the most liberal scholars, a Pauline letter. Paul definitely wrote this letter, and there's no question. That actually raises a very interesting issue, because in other books, uh, scholars who are unbelievers like to dismiss the contents of the books by simply saying, well, it's just written by a pseudo-author, right? And like to just say, we don't have to really care about what's said here, because it wasn't really Peter who wrote it, or it wasn't really Paul, it wasn't really Daniel who wrote it, it was written years later, and you know, they say that in order to dismiss the claims of the book. And the interesting thing is they can't do that with Galatians. So secular, unbelieving scholars admit this is written from Paul, and so, in, so how do they deal with the content here? Because they have to deal with it. And the interesting thing is it's not by you know, uh, discrediting the letter's authenticity, but as we'll see when we go through this letter, it's by really attacking the doctrine itself. And they try to get out of it by, by saying either Paul was a nut job or we don't really understand what he's saying and let me reinterpret this and let me tell you what he's really saying. And we're going to deal with the most important of those reinterpretations as we go through the exegesis. But it's not a disputed authorship. It was written by Paul to the churches in Galatia. Galatia was a Roman province. The name Galatia is actually named after the Gauls. You've probably heard of the Gauls before. And it's interesting that the Gauls, uh, another, the Greek word for Gauls is Celti, which is actually where we get the word Celtic. So these are uh, Celtic people, people (coughs) from Western Europe. And they migrated east in the third century BC to the place that we know as Turkey today. And they established their settlements there, and it was... uh, a place of the Gauls there in Turkey. When the Romans conquered it, they made it a Roman's province, and they called it Galatia, or basically the province of the Gauls. And this is to whom Paul writes, a Gentile people in the area of modern Turkey. He wrote to a people that were near and dear to his heart. Uh, Paul actually planted these churches on his first missionary journey. You'll see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, that the letter is written to multiple churches in the province of Galatia. And he founded those on his first missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter uh, uh, 13 and 14. So these were his babies, if you will. These were his spiritual children. And Paul wasn't just an evangelist. He wasn't just going out and preaching to nonbelievers. He was also a pastor. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the care of the churches constantly (laughs) rested upon his shoulders. So Paul wasn't the kind of guy who just passed through town, like I used to do, and uh, preach on a place and move on. But Paul was the kind of guy who'd preach to non-believers, but he'd constantly be concerned about their well-being. Stuart Briscoe writes that even a cursory reading suffices to show that Paul was deeply involved emotionally with what was going on in their midst. The date of the writing is in dispute, but it really actually changes little. Whether you take an earlier date or a later date, the, all the scholars who disagree on the date, it's, it really only changes it by a few years. So it's all, it's all pretty early. And while I won't go into the great debate of the date, the letter was probably written right before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Do so you remember in Acts chapter fifteen how there was this question that came up about whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised, and they called a council in Jerusalem to settle that matter, and the reason was is because there was a controversy going on there in uh, the churches. And turn with me to Acts chapter fifteen. This is really essential background to the letter of Galatians. Acts fifteen. Just jump back to chapter 14. (laughs) See, I do that (laughs) because I'm saying we're going to look at 15, but we want to see the context. (laughs) So Acts 14, and look at verse 26, just the last three verses. This is the end of Paul's very first missionary journey, and he's returning to Antioch from which he was originally sent out. In verse 26, it says, From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So Paul spends a long time in Antioch. And then verse, chapter 15, verse 1, it says in the, in the context of that time, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. It's interesting, he doesn't say some brothers came down from Judea, but he says some men. And this is a, you're going to see the correlation here in Galatians that Paul calls these men false brothers and false Christians. And here's what they say. Unless you are circumcised, he's telling this to the Gentiles, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, what? You can't be sanctified. You can't be recognized. No, you can't be saved. And this is the controversy that's going on in Galatians. They're saying, you know, it's really, really cool that you Gentiles are believing in the God of Israel and Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. That's really cool. But you know what? You're not actually in yet unless you're circumcised. You're not actually saved unless you become a Jew. Like, every, like all other Jews, by being circumcised, only then are you a child of Abraham. Are you righteous and are you saved? And in verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, as we're going to see, that's what the book of Galatians is all about. Great opposition, great combat about these ideas. Great debate. Then they determined to go to Jerusalem and settle that issue. So the book of Galatians was probably written at this time when Paul is at Antioch, after his first missionary journey, when these false brothers are going out and telling people that they have to be circumcised in order to be saved, and Paul is combating them and and fighting with them theologically and writing the letter to the church in Galatians about this very issue. So it's essential to see that. And also, look at verse 15 and verse 5, chapter 15, verse 5, excuse me, it's, it gives us more information about these uh, troublers. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up. So these are actually Paul's good old boys from back in the day. You see? These are Pharisees who believed in Jesus. These are Pharisees who believed Jesus was the Messiah. And they say it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and direct them to observe the law of Moses. So the, the, the The controversy is about these Pharisees who believed in Jesus and were saying they had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul sees through the issue that this is a compromising of the gospel. This is an introduction of worldly man-made religion and not the heavenly religion from God. This is going to put people into spiritual slavery and take away their spiritual freedom. This issue, which many people would say today, what's the big deal, right? They believe in Jesus. They believe. They're Christians. They just think you have to do that. And Paul says that this is spiritual suicide. The book of Galatians is one of Paul's most personal letters. There's autobiographical details in it that aren't found anywhere else in the Bible, and we'll get to know Paul better through our study in Galatians, which is exciting. Because they're attacking Paul also, not only his doctrine, but his person and his ministry to undermine his teaching. They saw Paul as false. They saw Paul as a false apostle. There's really no middle ground even today. You either hate Paul, or you love Paul. You either get Paul, or you don't get Paul. You either understand what he's preaching, or you think it's heresy. And so it was in the first century. There's really no middle ground over what the book of Galatians is about. It's Paul's most passionate, urgent, and serious letter, as I said, because the gospel is at stake and souls are at stake and the glory of God is at stake. So serious is the issue that Paul basically says, let these troublers be accursed. This is the most serious thing that we read in the New Testament. And that if you follow these guys, Christ will profit you nothing. The book of Galatians is a sister book to the book of Romans. They're both dealing with very much of the same themes and the same things. These two books constitute cornerstone books in the Bible. You cannot afford to get Galatians wrong. If you get Galatians and Romans wrong, you get Christianity wrong. And what's interesting, and I'll just close with this this morning, that uh, the book of Galatians is particular in its origin. I mean, when Paul wrote Galatians, he wasn't writing it to to all the churches everywhere. He wasn't writing it to all people of all the world. He was writing it to the churches of Galatia over a very specific issue. But it's for that very reason that the book is a classic and that the book has a universal effect. Because classics are classics, not because someone sits down and says, I'm going to write a book that is just perfect for the whole world, but because they're dealing with real issues in a real world. They're not thinking about how it's going to become a classic. They're thinking about real issues in a real world. And because they do that, it becomes universally important and applicable. And I'd just like to close by pointing out what a huge effect the book of Galatians has become. James Montgomery Boyce says that not many books have made such a lasting impression on men's minds as the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, nor have many done so much to shape the history of the Western world This book of Galatians has been called the battle cry of the Reformation. This was the book that was the manifesto of freedom for the reformers in the day of their struggle with the tyranny of Satan and the lies of the devil. It shook the world in the 16th century when a monk named Martin Luther in Germany who was seeking spiritual freedom He was feeling the oppression. He was wanting to be free and breathe that oxygen of the soul. And Martin Luther was full of fears, and he wanted to be a man who would set free and have peace, life, liberty, and joy. And he had none of it as a Roman Catholic, because the Roman Catholics taught him, you know, God is a lawgiver, and you have to keep his laws, and if you don't keep his laws, there's just nothing else that can be said. And Martin Luther was reading the Bible. And through his reading of the Bible, for the first time in his life, he caught the scent of freedom. And he read about righteousness through faith. He read about the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. He read about God not just as a lawgiver, but as a God of love and of grace for evil people like us. He read about a God who cares and is merciful towards sinners. He read about the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed so that sinners could be forgiven, not the righteous, but sinners. He read about the free grace of God that justifies ungodly people. And he says when he got that, it was like heaven opened up to him and his soul was flooded with joy and he was free. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., could truly say that. And the book of Galatians, as Martin Luther's understanding of the Bible matured, the book of Galatians really became his favorite epistle. People often comment how similar Galatians is in tone and style to Luther, actually. Luther was an intense man also, but he was fighting the same kind of a battle that Paul was fighting here. Luther said of the book of Galatians that it's my epistle. He took it to himself. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. That was his wife. He says, Galatians is my wife, basically. That's what he lived by. (laughs) And it's true. It really was. And Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Galatians in which he explained the book of Galatians. It's an absolute classic. Everyone should read it if you get the chance. It has had a profound effect upon the world. I'd just like to share two famous of two famous people who were profoundly affected by Luther's commentary on Galatians. And so you have a chain from these famous people to Luther and Luther to Paul grasping what Paul was saying. And it's interesting that these two people are opposites. You've got John Bunyan in the 17th century. John Bunyan was a despicable person. He was a profligate man, and he knew he was a wretched guy, and he knew he was no good, and, but eventually he realized he's going to hell just like in the Pilgrim's Progress, which is very autobiographical. He realized, I'm in the city of destruction, and I don't know what to do. But someone shared some good news with him. And Martin Luther, uh, his book on Galatians, John Bunyan said, has had the biggest effect on his life. And uh, Bunyan found freedom through the truths of Galatians, through the truths that a man is not justified by being a good person or by being... By doing works before god but a man is justified and forgiven of his sins through christ by grace through nothing but faith and when bunyan grasped that he said something very similar to luther actually he said that the heavens opened and he saw his righteousness up in heaven and that's what set him free When he said, I saw my righteousness up in heaven, he meant Jesus Christ. It's not because I am righteous. It's not because I am good. It's Jesus Christ and what he has done and who he is that I am righteous. And so Bunyan, it's interesting, about 100 years plus later than Luther, is set free by the same truth and says very much the same thing. Jump another 100 years forward to a very different man, Charles Wesley, a man whose song we sang today. And Charles Wesley was very different than Bunyan. He was a self-righteous man. Charles, Charles Wesley thought he was a good person. He was actually asked on one occasion, what is your hope of going to heaven? What is your hope of being justified in the judgment day? And Wesley actually answered and said, my, my service and good deeds to God. That's what he said. I, I believe because of what I do and my good deeds that I'll be justified in heaven. And this man shook his head and it really offended Charles West, actually. The man shook his head and said, that's not going to do it. He was really offended by that. He was saying that my works are no good, you know? Of course, he began to realize he was a sinner, too. His works were worth nothing. And interestingly enough, Charles Wesley was saved by reading Martin Luther's commentary to Galatians. And he describes it. He says, I felt like I entered the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he said. His soul was set free. And we read in his autobiographical hymn, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving light. I woke in the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. This is a self-righteous man talking. This is not my chains of all my drug abuse and stuff like that fell off, which is a good thing. But he's talking about the spiritual chains and fear that bound him. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And in that immortal hymn, he expresses what thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of Christians have experienced when they come to understand the truth of Galatians, the meaning of the cross, the meaning of the death of Christ, the meaning of righteousness through faith, and the freedom that that brings from the tyranny of lies and sin and death. The same power and the the same truth and the same power that transformed these men is found here in Galatians, and it can have the same effect on us today. Amen? Do you believe that? Is this dead now? Is the truth not still powerful and needful? Is the cross still the statue of liberty that enlightens the dark world? Have you been enlightened by it? Have you felt the heavens open up? Do you walk in that freedom that you have in Christ? That's what we're going to be about as we go through the book of Galatians. And I'll just close with Jesus' words. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Galatians, this letter that was written and that has been preserved to us. Most of all, we thank you for the truth that sets us free, the truth that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that shows us who you are, who we are, and your amazing salvation. Lord, I could just pray again that you would guide us as we go through the book of Galatians, open our eyes. Lord, impact us by this radical truth. Help us to breathe that oxygen, Lord. Help us to see that we are totally free in Jesus Christ from all the shackles that Satan would put upon us. Lord, help us to live in the joy of eternal life and the freedom that you have bought for us by your blood. We commit this to you, and we praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.